Because such obstacles had not kept Isaac from increasing his wealth, Abimelech told Isaac to leave the Philistine area because of how well he had done. Quite frankly, Abimelech complained, you, that is Isaac, are much mightier than we. The Bible is full of stories that we all know and love. But how well do we know them? The answer might surprise you. The Bible you thought you knew is going to dive deep into the exquisite details of the biblical stories that make them fascinating and transforming. In this week's podcast, we are going to feature Isaac. Because Isaac is part of one of the most famous and frequently used phrases in the Old Testament, namely, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, one would think that there is a great deal of material about the man. But compared to the many stories in which Abraham and Jacob have prominent roles, Isaac gets relatively little attention in Scripture. Though he plays a significant part in Genesis 27, where he is tricked into blessing Jacob rather than Esau, he has to share top billing, so to speak, with Jacob and, to a lesser extent, Rebekah his wife and Esau his cheated son. However, in Genesis 26, Isaac has a chapter all to himself, except for a minor role that Rebekah plays. That is the chapter we will treat this week. The episode begins by noting that there was a famine in the land where Isaac was living. This is a different famine from the one Avram and Sarai experienced and is narrated in Genesis 12. Due to this famine, Isaac went to Gerar, where the Philistine king Abimelech reigned. Unlike his father, Isaac was explicitly told by the Lord not to go to Egypt to wait out the famine. That's in verse 2 of chapter 26. Eventually, he was to dwell in the land which God had in mind for him and his descendants. For now, though, he was to stay in this land, meaning Philistine territory. In time, Isaac would inherit all these lands. During this divine appearance, the Lord also reinforces the covenant made with Abraham and Sarah. The Lord promises to be with Isaac and bless him. In short, God will fulfill the oath sworn to Isaac's father Abraham and his mother Sarah. That's in verse 3. Of course, that oath includes multiplying descendants as the stars in the heavens and giving these descendants all these lands. Furthermore, through these descendants, all the nations of the earth will bless themselves. That's in verse 4. All of this was related to Abraham's obeying the divine voice, keeping God's charge, the commandments, statutes, and laws. In sum, Isaac is carrying out the legacy that God put in place for Abraham and Sarah. For now, however, Isaac and Rebekah are living in Gerar. Right off the bat, some men inquired about Isaac's wife. Given Isaac's answer, it is not difficult to infer 
precisely why they were curious about her. When asked, Isaac responded that, she is my sister. Recall that his father had once said the same thing about Sarah at Gerar and involving Abimelech with almost disastrous results. That story is in Genesis 20, the first 18 verses. Isaac did this because Rebekah was attractive, which made him worry that the men in Gerar would want to get rid of him so that they could have a chance with his wife. That's in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 26. By insisting that his wife was his sister, Isaac figured that he would avoid trouble. Before long, a presumably much more wary Abimelech happened to catch sight of Isaac being friendly with Rebekah in a manner that suggested that the couple was being amorous. That's in verse 8. Abimelech concluded on the basis of what he had just seen that Rebekah had to be Isaac's wife, which meant that Isaac had lied. When Abimelech called Isaac on the carpet, he came clean and said that he feared for his life when asked about her. That's in verse 9. Abimelech got upset. He pointed out that by Isaac saying Rebekah was his sister, any man around might have had sexual relations with her and incurred guilt. That's in verse 10. Doubtless remembering how frightening his previous encounter with a patriarch and his wife had been, Abimelech wanted to make sure nothing like that happened again, so he gave orders that no one was to bother Rebekah. Anyone who did risked death. That's in verse 11. From now on, Isaac and Rebekah were relatively safe in their temporary residence. That safety made it possible for Isaac to farm the land. He planted crops and did very well economically. Isaac, of course, also enjoyed God's blessing. That's in verse 12. Isaac's hard work and the Lord's blessing eventuated in the man's becoming prosperous. In time, he became fabulously rich. That's in verse 13. Indeed, Isaac had so many flocks and herds and such a magnificent household that before long he became the envy of the Philistines. That's in verse 14. Isaac's wealth caused a Philistine backlash. Years ago, when Abraham was around, the Philistines had filled wells with dirt that Abraham himself had dug. Obviously, this was a way to prevent Abraham from flourishing. Because such obstacles had not kept Isaac, from increasing his wealth, Abimelech told Isaac to leave the Philistine area because of how well he had done. Quite frankly, Abimelech complained, you, that is Isaac, are much mightier than we. That's verse 16. Apparently, Isaac felt he had no choice but to take Abimelech's directive to heart. He put a little distance between himself and Gerar, deciding to settle in the valley of Gerar. That's in verse 17. Once there, he proceeded to redig the wells that Abraham had previously dug. 
Remember that the Philistines had stopped them up with mud after Abraham had died. That's in verse 18. Abraham had even named these wells. Isaac used the same names that his father had assigned once he redug these wells. But when Isaac's servants dug new wells in the valley, a difficulty arose. This was because when Isaac's servants dug these wells, the herdsmen from Gerar insisted that the water belonged to them, that is, to the Philistines. The names Isaac gave to these wells was reflective of this dispute. The first one was called Essek, which means contention. That's in verse 20. Isaac's shepherds dug another well, precipitating the same results. That well was named Sitna, which stands for enmity. That's in verse 21. Thinking the third time might be the charm, Isaac had another well dug and, miracle of miracles, no one argued about it. That's in verse 22. That well was named Rehoboth, a word suggestive of broad places or wide paths. Isaac gave full credit to God for this outcome. He was thankful that the Lord had provided room for his family so that they could continue to prosper. The crisis over these water sources was thankfully over. Isaac said as much, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Then Isaac traveled from the valley of Gerar to Beersheba. That was where the Lord appeared to him. That's in verse 23. The Lord reiterated the ancestral promise by saying, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. That's in verse 24. Given the gravity of what God had said, indicating that the divine promise made to Abraham and Sarah would continue with Isaac and Rebekah, Isaac's response is instructive. Clearly, God's plans for the ancestors will proceed apace, and Isaac and Rebekah will do their part in accomplishing the divine plan. Obviously, a divine appearance this momentous requires something more than a mere acknowledgement. Isaac's response was appropriate to the nature of God's announcement. He did three things. One, he built an altar. Two, he called on the name of the Lord. Three, he pitched his tent. At first, this seems not only random, but odd. What does pitching a tent have to do with building an altar? What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Building an altar and calling on the name of the Lord seem to be religious activities, whereas pitching a tent appears to be utterly mundane. How should we view these responses to God's underscoring of the ancestral promise? As it turns out, all three of these actions are religious, spiritual, and even liturgical responses to what God had just said. Abraham had done the same thing the first time the Lord told him that his descendants would inherit this land, meaning Canaan. 
That's in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 12 of Genesis. The patriarch built an altar, called on the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent. A little later in the Abraham story, these activities are mentioned as having significance. That's in Genesis 13, verse 4. After another divine appearance and God's repeating the promise of land, Abraham moved his tent and built an altar to the Lord. That's in verse 18 of chapter 13 of Genesis. Only the calling on the name of the Lord is missing. Here in Isaac's case, all three elements of the response to a divine announcement are present. Building an altar, calling on the name of the Lord, and pitching a tent. Building an altar is at the heart of Israelite worship, as is calling on the name of the Lord. The latter is more than prayer. It is a way of expressing submission to the divine will. Even pitching or moving a tent has a religious flavor. Pitching or moving a tent is something that evokes making one's home and settling down. When one does that after God's elective call, as an act of obedience, and as a function of future hope that God will fulfill the divine promise, both pitching and moving a tent is a thoroughly religious response. Even when we are told that, after Isaac had built the altar, called in the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent, Isaac's servants dug another well, that itself was another action transfused with religious import. Digging a well goes along with pitching a tent as a way of expressing that one day God's promise of land will indeed be a reality. Eventually, the Philistine king, Abimelech, changed his mind about Isaac. So he brought with him Ahuzath, an advisor, and Philcol, an army commander, and went to see Isaac. That's in verse 26. Naturally, Isaac was surprised and wondered what Abimelech had on his mind since the king had treated him so shabbily. Indeed, Isaac characterized the king's demanding that he depart Gerar as nothing short of hatred. That's in verse 27. Abimelech explained the reason for his change of heart. Astonishingly, Abimelech had observed that the Lord was with Isaac, even using the distinctive name of the Israelite God. Because of this, the king thought that he and Isaac should have a treaty or covenant. Just as Isaac had not been a bad guest or harmed any Philistine, and just as the Philistines have not harassed Isaac, but sent him away without hostility, this situation should obtain in the future. After all, Abimelech intoned, you are now the blessed of the Lord. That was quite a turnaround, especially in light of the tensions over the wells, not to mention Isaac's passing off Rebekah as his sister. Who would have thought that amicable relationships were possible after such serious misunderstandings? 
Showing good faith, Abimelech gave a feast where the parties ate and drank. That's in verse 30. That was a common way to celebrate and even ratify an agreement between two groups. The next morning, both made vows agreeing to be on good terms. Then Isaac sent the Philistines on their way as they left in peace. That's in verse 31. On that same day, Isaac's servants came to tell him about another well that they had dug, at which point they proudly proclaimed, We have found water. Isaac took that as a positive, perhaps even providential sign, so he named that well Shiva, which means oath. That, we are told, is where the name Be'er Sheva comes from, for that name means the spring or the well of the oath. This chapter featuring Isaac concludes by mentioning something odd, and seemingly unrelated to what had just been narrated. It has to do with Esau, the elder son of Isaac and Rebekah. We learn that Esau married two Hittite wives, Judith and Basimoth. That's in verse 34. While we puzzle about the pertinence of this information, the last thing we are told is that these two daughters-in-law made life miserable for Isaac and Rebekah. We learn later that that is an important datum for another story. There are interesting implications for seeing this passage as scripture. For one thing, God is attentive to the circumstances affecting the people divinely elected, which so far includes Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah. A famine is threatening but God did not leave Isaac and Rebekah to fend for themselves. The deity had another plan for them, just in case they might have considered Egypt as a place to ride out the famine. Also, God makes sure that Isaac is aware of the ancestral promise. No matter how mundane the story seems, we cannot lose sight that providential factors are always in play. This is a story which features people whom God had chosen for a grand experiment to bless not only them, but eventually all the families of the earth. In a sense, knowing that sanctifies every ordinary event we read in these pages. Equally, it seems that Abimelech had learned his lesson better than Isaac had. Twice, Abraham had passed off his wife as his sister, thinking that God could not protect him. Isaac fell into the same trap. Because of the narrow escape Abimelech had had in his previous dust-up with Abraham and Sarah, he was much more sensitive to the issues this time around. He made certain that Isaac and Rebekah could live in Gerar safely at least for a while. The business of the wells even has a religious dimension. First, the Philistines tried to thwart Abraham and Sarah's ability to thrive by filling up with dirt wells that they had dug. That was the same as interfering with God's ultimate plan. When Isaac dug more wells, the Philistines were once more obstructionist. 
Eventually, though, that dispute got worked out and friendly relationships were established. Wells indicate abundance, the ability to grow food, raise animals, and survive. But ultimately, they signify life itself. Think, for example, of the stress on the living water that Jesus provides and promises in the Gospel of John. These wells in this story adumbrate the spiritual power of water throughout Scripture. We need to remember that every time we utter the name Be'er Sheva, the well of the oath. That oath was God-ensuring that the promise of the future for God's elect people and for everyone else would never be forgotten by a patriarch or a matriarch or any of the rest of us. At the conclusion of this podcast, once again, let me encourage you to pose any questions you have for me at my email, fspina106 at gmail.com. That's fspina106 at gmail.com, and I'll answer those questions in a subsequent podcast. Also, go to my website, faspina.com and indicate your email there so that I can communicate with you as we start doing our experimental mini-courses. Thank you. I want to thank you so very much for listening to The Bible You Thought You Knew. I have a question for you. Do you have a question or topic that you'd like me to cover on the podcast? If so... All you need to do is head over to Apple Podcasts and do two simple things. One, leave a rating and review telling me what you think of the podcast. Two, in that review, ask anything you want related to the Bible. That's all you have to do. Then, listen in to hear your question answered on a future episode. Join us next time on The Bible You Thought You Knew when we discuss Jesus' personal Bible. God bless.